Hello and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. I'm your host, Jesse Nussman. And this week, we're discussing the best movies of 2022. The year has come to an end. And joining us today is Daniel Feingold. Daniel, how are you feeling at the end of uh, the year of our Lord 2022? I feel like Thanos at the end of Infinity War, where he just kind of limps his way out and sits down and rests after accomplishing the snap, I guess if you want to call it accomplishment, for him it was, and uh, just, you know, kind of tired, but we made it. I feel like this may be, I know we've talked a lot about how good of a movie year this has been or how not good of a movie year this is this has been wow stumping over the questions (laughs) i feel like i have perhaps seen more movies this year than i have at any other point in my life uh i definitely feel like the high point for me just kind of like i i you and i were randomly talking about 2019 the other day and that's just looking at my letterbox list i was like yep that's definitely the year i saw like the most movies i've ever have but also found myself in a uh unusual circumstance of was looking over a lot of those movies and was like definitely do not remember what this is even about um but i don't know that i necessarily have that feeling this year um i guess a good place to start before we're we're gonna go through each of our top 10 lists um but daniel do you feel like this was a good year for movies a a bad year for movies a meh year i've i've seen this kind of debated in a couple other outlets namely there is like a really great piece in vulture a couple weeks ago that um i think kind of argued sort of where i am which is this being kind of a meh to kind of mediocre year for going to the movies i guess what is the context are we talking about like how how did i enjoy my movie year or for yeah, the, yeah yeah for the industry okay because we're talking I about mean, the industry i mean for the for the industry we could say this was a very i we don't have to get too into the weeds but i think we could say this was a very awkward year that th- this felt like the pandemic hangover year if this felt like the first year of like this is this is our first kind of like post-covid movie year and it was kind of evident several times throughout the year that there just wasn't a whole lot of stuff that was being made during the pandemic for kind of obvious reasons and kind of these awkward periods in the year. Like, do you, I'm sure you remember like August where there was like two new releases or something. There would be these giant gaps in the year where kind of nothing was coming out and even sort of like the fall slates or not, not even just the fall slates, but a lot of the festival slates seeming a little slimmer than usual um but i i and and even now we're sort of in this awkward position where like people clearly want to go back to the movies but it's for big spectacle driven ip stuff like avatar and top gun and meanwhile sort of like your more mid-budget adult movies or kind of like fall prestige movies people are the audiences for those movies i feel like still exist but at this point they're kind of conditioned to be like Nah, I'm fine just waiting at home until this comes out on VOD. And the studios will do that. Just after three weeks, something, if it's not playing well in theaters, will go to VOD. And so that puts us in kind of this bizarre catch-22 where you have a kind of, like, I, you and I have talked a lot about, like, Chris Ryan at The Ringer, I feel like, was uh, the person who kind of put this into to viewpoint for me, of kind of saying, like, the industry sort of 
screwed themselves a little bit by putting them in this awkward, as I said, catch 22 situation where like people got used to everything just going straight to streaming during the pandemic. And so the industry sort of tripled down on streaming. And then this year it feels like realized, Oh wait, streaming doesn't really make money. And there are a variety of different reasons for that, um, that, you know, we just don't have the time to get into, but we can do a bigger business episode later on. Um, and then, so studios realizing, Oh shoot, we got to get people to come back to the theaters, but people are already conditioned to kind of like, unless it's Top Gun Maverick, uh, they're fine just waiting at home. Um, so maybe that's a long-winded way of saying like that's kind of how the business felt this year. But but how was how was your movie year? Just as 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 a man who who went to the to the movieplex. Jesse, let me tell you, I had a great time. Okay, I had a great right. year at Good the movies. Um, I think we started strong. I was surprised with how strong we had everything everywhere all at once right out of the gate. We had. Um, the Northman right out of the gate. I'm a huge Nicolas Cage fan, so I believe we talked about that movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Not on the top 10, but it, it not the, the best movie of the year by any means, but another movie, enjoyable, right out of the gate. There was the lull later in the year, but I feel like that void for us was filled with going to the Toronto International Film Festival. The first time I'd been back at a film festival since 2019, and really since 2018, when I went to TIFF that year, because 2019, South by Southwest, whenever I go there, I'm visiting friends, it's not really like, this was the experience of like, I am going to see as many movies as my body allows me to in this certain amount of time, so kudos to you for, for kind of nudging us in that direction of like, we should go, we should go to a film festival, um, and then, you know, as usual, the last kind of two, three, four months felt like a sprint of let me cram in all of the award season stuff that we didn't get a chance to see um, from Toronto. And yeah, I never, there was that one lull, but for the most part, I don't... I don't put myself in a box with thinking about movies like I used to with star ratings mm. and for tortured souls like you. And I mean that in the best way possible because I myself am certainly a tortured soul currently, but even more so when I was reviewing movies previous to my current stint reviewing movies, I would think of everything very much as like, is this an A plus, an A minus, a B? Is this a four stars, four and a half? I just don't see it that way anymore. I come out of a movie and it's all about the vibes. It's all about feeling good. And you know what? Some people might say, it's not vibes. It's mental illness. Go see a doctor. But this is where I'm at in life. I'm a 31-year-old man. I just want to have a good time at the movies. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of in a flip from you and you know I'm I'm not I'm not ashamed to admit it and um you know it's interesting you bring up like star rating I then was just like I wonder what where most of the movies I have like a big ranked list of everything I saw this year on on Letterboxd and there's there's a lot of like three and a half and three so like it's not like everything I saw this year was was bad this 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 certainly didn't feel like a catastrophically bad movie year it just felt like a movie year where there I I didn't quite see anything, and this is maybe a bad primer for us to get into our top ten list. I didn't, I didn't see any kind of like wow five star movies this year. I think 
I even I would say like the my top number one movie. I I don't even know would would like maybe crack the top ten from like a couple of years ago in like 2019 or something like that. Um, you know, and last year I would say there was like four movies I saw that you know it some a couple of them it took repeated viewings, but was like wow masterpiece hands down. I don't know that I saw anything like that this year. I saw maybe about like nine movies that I really, really liked and thought were pretty great. I saw a good chunk of stuff that I thought was was good and that I like was satisfied leaving the theater and then saw a giant swath of stuff that I was either mixed or kind of meh on. And then, you know, the, the you know, the crappy stuff that is, you know, not really worth mentioning. But um, I, I thought in kind of a, kind of like reading a few sort of big overarching pieces on the year, some interesting trends I kind of saw you know, there seemed to be this kind of big push towards kind of bombastic spectacle movies, whether they be Top Gun or Avatar or even something like RRR, the, this movie from India that kind of became sort of a small little sensation uh, over here in the States. You know, people, I think, yearning for a kind of spectacle and a sort of bigness in their movies and and a kind of like over-the-top style, like, right in your face. Um, and that's not to say there weren't sort of, like, beautiful sort of subtler movies like Banshees of Inishirin or After Sun, but it really seemed like the movies that were kind of dominating the conversation this year were the sort of, like, biggest, loudest, most sweeping kinds of movies that you could go see. Um, and sort of the second kind of trend that I noticed was maybe, you know, a lot of the, like, big name director auteur projects either being i think very divisive or kind of being a letdown whether it be blonde amsterdam the whale uh i'm more positive on like nope and babylon than i think you are but i think we can both agree divisive movies uh men another kind of divisive big swing movie don't don't worry darling you know, a, a lot of these movies, even even we could do a smaller sort of example of something like Claire Denis' Stars at Noon, which like Claire Denis maybe isn't as big of a filmmaker name as those other people. But for a, a certain demographic of moviegoers, a new Claire Denis movie is a huge deal. And we got two ter- Claire Denis movies this year. One of them I, I thought was was quite good. But then, you know, second one kind of arguably being i think her weakest movie unfortunately and so I'm, I'm curious what you think of kind of those two ideas that i think that second one kind of maybe works into some of my feelings of kind of like oh yeah i guess it was just kind of an okay year kind of what what while we're about to sort of flip the page to 2023 is a lot of the stuff that we kind of had circled on the calendar is like oh this is this is going to be big can't wait for this and kind of coming out and all of those movies I mentioned have their defenders. I'm even a defender of a couple of them, but I think walking out and people either having these polarizing reactions to them or walking out kind of being like that, that was a giant swing and miss. I didn't like that. Everyone is is here for the discourse. Um, Yeah. I was thinking earlier actually about how this year, in reflecting upon it feels more so like a year where directors just got kind of carte blanche to do whatever. Mm. 
whether it was Damien Chazelle or Alejandro Alejandro in, in a, an, another perfect example of what I'm talking a, a movie that had like a lot of hype building up to it and then it came out and that movie has like certainly it's defenders a couple even high profile defenders like Barry Jenkins but like the the vibe on it seems to be not very positive and I would agree <laughs> You have Empire of Light. You have Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg making a semi-autobiographical movie. Uh, you have Armageddon Time, a similar kind of semi-autobiographical yeah. story. Um, and I think I think the, the the main one would be Babylon because of the scope of it. And clearly, this was like Damien Chazelle getting no notes and just like do take the studio's money and make what you want. And we love to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that said, I, I guess, there, like, going into 2023, as we, if, if I'm putting it in kind of the scope of, like, the Oscar race, perhaps, um, there doesn't, I guess there doesn't seem to be, like, a clear consensus of, like, everyone loves this movie. I mm, guess the closest mm-hmm. thing would be Everything Everywhere All at Once, maybe The Fablemans, but, like, not enough people yeah. saw it. Right. But... It, granted, this is not fair because we were in pandemic lockdowns. You mentioned your 2019 list. I was looking back at like 2020 and 2021. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Oh, I man. mean, tw- 2020. That's probably like the worst movie year I hope Brutal. I ever experienced. Brutal. But even even last year, I would say I thought had like even though it was a small handful. You know, I don't think I like like I said, I don't think I had any five star movies on my list this year. I think last year I had four, which, you know, is maybe just a statement of th- this year being like, oh, yeah, this was kind of just an OK year. Now, I say that also while like next year, it looks like, you know, there's we'll, we'll we can kind of wrap up with like a look at what we're talking, what we're uh, talk about what we're looking forward to next year but you know like we have a martin scorsese movie we have a greta gerwig movie a christopher nolan movie a david fincher movie a you know a michael mann movie a dune sequel a new mission impossible but like next year seems like a very an ari aster movie another ridley scott movie you know the next year is sort of seeming like a big movie year on paper but then you know I, i i think the devil's advocate argument could be this year sort of seemed like that. It just sort of seemed like a lot of the big high profile auteur projects, um, you know, where, where people, people were taking big swings across the board. And I think there's a lot of debate about how it doesn't seem like anyone agrees that any of those projects were sort of full home runs, but now there's maybe like defenders of each of those that are like, Oh, this is maybe more interesting than like people were giving credit for. Um, and maybe that sort of fits I, into to sort of a little bit of my kind of lukewarm energy at the end of this year. I will also say another theme I think of this year is potentially, potentially the grip of superhero movies mm. loosening a little bit. Yeah. And we had Black Adam that disappointed at the box office. We had Morbius, which did terribly. Mm-hmm. Even the ones that were more successful, like Thor, like Doctor Strange, were not incredible. Like the these were not home runs. 
financially yes. for Marvel. And and that does not mean Disney is going to stop or even dial back a little bit. But if this trend continues, this is really the first time that I can remember where these movies were not doing gangbusters. Yes, like I agree. 10 out of 10 times. And I guess the, the jury is still out on how well and how long the staying power will be for the Black Panther sequel, which I thought was very good and probably the highlight of Marvel this year. Um, yeah, I'm not quite as high on it as as you, but even then, like it seems that movie did well, but maybe not as it what didn't do as, as well as the, sort of was yeah. expected to do. Um, which is you know the weird sliding curve that we talk about with these like huge tentpole blockbusters. But n- nevertheless, I think even that movie, I th- think, still kind of fits into your point some with a little bit of the I it, th- this feeling like a year where people are maybe starting to get a little tired of that trend. I don't know. Maybe, Warner maybe, Brothers, Warner yes. Brothers <laughs> threw an almost complete superhero movie in the trash because they thought that would make more money for them or recoup their money than actually releasing it to people. So mm. that is that is a, obviously a, a very bizarre example and not something that we are should expect you know to continue to happen, and it's also not really a, uh, a pleasant example. But... It just it's the first time that I can remember like superhero movie after superhero movie coming out and it's not necessarily that they're all underperforming, but none of them were like, wow. That said, yes. at the end of at the end of last year, we had Spider Man, which became mm-hmm. one of the biggest movies of all time. And, so, and the Batman movie earlier this year was yeah. was a huge hit as well. So I, I don't I don't think I don't I don't think either of us are saying that this subgenre is like in in the tank and is going away forever, but but I I think you may be saying like this is the first year where there's there's felt like a little bit of um a little bit of exhaustion in the air I think even on part of the public and I think even those those three Marvel movies you know being I think three of the sort of lesser received Marvel movies um and I I don't know I I fully get what what you're saying of of it 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 feels like a little bit of um superhero fatigue that we've right. talked that people yes. talked about for years finally maybe maybe just the a ground is feeling a little less in. stable than maybe it did yeah. like back in 2019 um well should we go ahead and and hop into our lists um i don't think we have to spend too long sort of getting into some of these um because some of these are movies we've obviously talked a lot about on this show previously but uh, I'll 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 kick it off to you to start us at at number ten, and we can kind of bounce back and forth. Um, and obviously, I'm sure we'll have some overlap in our our picks. But I, I think our lists are fairly different enough. We 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 definitely have some crossover. Um, I was just looking. I was just comparing the two. Um, number ten for me, Fire of Love, which mm. has been out for for a minute, but I I did finally get around to seeing it recently. Um, a nice little documentary about um vulcanologist couple Mm -hmm. who i guess really rose to prominence in what like the early 80s yeah 70s 80s something like that yeah Yeah. and it is one part a story of their love and kind of frenetic kinetic energy going on there as well as their love for volcanoes and kind of how they bonded over not being interested in man but being interested in Mother Nature and the footage in this movie that is all from them is breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Like it is 
it is unbelievably breathtaking. Like there are shots, whether it's pictures, B-roll, that you you really have to see to believe. And even when you see it, it almost looks like CGI. Uh, that's that's mm-hmm. just how we're like programmed now. Um, it's 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 incredible. Um, and if you know the true story about them, I don't think that really makes any difference with uh, how you experience this movie. Um, just just a, a, a great little documentary, and I I hope it uh, I hope it gets some love during the award season. Yeah, Katia and Maurice Croft are the the two volcanologists. Uh, this was obviously a movie that kind of premiered at Sundance earlier in the year. It's now uh, available to stream on Disney+. Plus. Um, I like it too. Maybe not quite as much as, as you do, but I would be surprised if this somehow isn't in the like best documentary conversation when Oscar season comes around. Um, my number 10 is, you know, I, 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 as I said, I had nine clear movies that I really wanted to talk about. And so for the 10th one, it was like a real kind of toss up of like, oh, do I want to talk about after sun or do I maybe want to talk Banshees of Inishirin? Do I want to bring up Babylon again to troll Daniel? But, um, I, I, I think I decided I, I was going to talk about the Northmen. Um, which I believe you and I talked about on the show kind of earlier in the spring after we saw it. Uh, this is obviously Robert Eggers' uh, Viking revenge action epic. Um, Robert Eggers, the writer-director behind The Lighthouse and The Witch. This is kind of him leveling up to, I think, a much bigger, broader canvas. And, you know, it it it, it, it kind of does fit into sort of what you identified this, this year of, like, a lot of studios kind of letting directors take big swings on projects. I, I think part of the weird reception to this movie when it came out in the spring and it was kind of a bomb, but then I think found very quickly a second life on BOD was it was in some ways, I think caught in the middle of being like a little too alienating for commercial audiences, but maybe like a little too commercial for art house audiences and like Eggers talking about how he didn't quite have final cut on it and had to like make some compromises with the the studio. But, um, you know, I, I have not watched it since it came out, but just sort of looking over the movies from this year was one that caught my eye is like that. That was a really standout experience seeing that on a big screen and just, kind of having this big grin on my face of oh my gosh they really let him do it like they they it feels like a robert eggers movie through and through and all of the sort of weird specific interests he has and kind of like ancient cultures and sort of specific dialects and kind of like immersing you in this very specific time period in this very specific place um and and all sort of wrapped up in kind of this this big sweeping sword and sandal epic so um yeah just one i i think kind of like looking over the movies i saw this year that i was like yeah that that one that was like a a hell of an experience to sit through and see and uh you know i would not say it is the the easiest movie to watch in the world it is like very bleak and very brutally violent in places but i i think if you if you're hungry for a kind of very visceral sort of old-fashioned sword not even old-fashioned but like a very visceral kind of exciting sword and sandal epic um it's one i would definitely recommend checking out i believe it's on your list too right it is number five on my list okay yeah wow very 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 happy to have it there uh do you have any 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 thoughts on it while while we're here talking about it 
two men fight in a volcano at the end. So kind of kind of a fun transition there in, from, but, from from your number not from your number ten to like talking about this both volcano movies yeah, in a way. <laughs> I mean that's that's my way of saying no notes. I mean he also gets to do his potty humor again. <laughs> that um, is true. <laughs> so he really they just you know they let him cook um, and just fantastic. It, it was everything that I hoped it it, it could be. Yeah, I I think you and I are in sort of like the rare uh sort of demographic of like walked out of this movie and we're like yeah, that's that's what I wanted and what I hoped that would be. <laughs> you know, we were not one of the people that wanted a really like austere weird surrealist movie or thought that they were going to let him make that, but also I think we were not expecting or wanting like Conan the Barbarian either. Um so yeah. The, the Northman. What what a what a ride. Um, you want to talk about your number nine now? Number nine is Barbarian, a movie okay. that from came one out barbarian of to another. Yeah, we're really we're really nailing these transitions. Yes, uh, Georgina Campbell, Justin Long, Bill Skarsgård, directed and written by Zach Kreger, won the box office, had really great word of mouth, went and saw it on a weekday afternoon, theater like. Two or three weeks after it opened, theater was half full, and what a ride. A horror movie that is told in kind of three different structures, and the entire time it is just completely subverting your expectations and the genre and what we know of horror movies and the scenarios that we're put into or the characters are put into, and it is just... Man, it's a fun time at the movies. I I opened I we opened the show and I I talked about how I'm a 31 year old man who just wants to have a good time at the movies. And boy oh boy, is this it! It's also one of the funniest movies of the year. Mm. Um, it can also along with subverting our expectations of scenarios in the movie uh, or of the genre, it subverts the actors, particularly Justin Long and Bill Skarsgård. Bill Skarsgård, um, I'm sorry, is it? Yeah, yeah it's, Bill, it's Bill Skarsgård. We were talking about, yeah, so so we're going from Alexander Skarsgård to Bill Skarsgård. In Skarsgard. the Northman, yeah, um, to this movie. <laughs> yes, another another amazing transition. And um, Bill Skarsgård, who is playing Nosferatu in the Robert Eggers remake of, of that vampire movie. <laughs> so, so many crossovers. Um, but yeah, Bill Skarsgård, known as, known most as Pennywise from It. So, and... On the other hand, Justin Long, known as kind of like the very nice and pleasant everyman type character, and they flip the switch. And this one was this very much like how you have how you have the Northman at number ten. This was kind of like I gotta I, I want to show some love to Barbarian and, and make sure this gets on the list so we can talk about it and so I can just like let people know how much I appreciated this. Cause initially I was like, yeah, really good, but I don't know if I want to include like the kind of ridiculous horror movie. And then it's like, no, this, this deserves like all the praise that it, it got this year when it was released. Yeah. It's I, I would be curious whether it would hold up on a second viewing, but it's definitely one of the, the more fun first time viewings, especially for a movie that I, I thought was, very smartly marketed and and had this very buzzed about like you just you just got to see it like 
you can't explain the plot to it to anyone. You don't watch the trailer either. Don't. Yeah. I hadn't seen the trailer. I knew nothing about this movie going in other than Justin Long was in it. And I was very confused, obviously for the first act because he was nowhere to be seen, but even the trailer, I, I would say shows way too much. So if you, if you have not, if you have not seen the trailer for Barbarian at this point, just don't still, I think it's on HBO. I think the movie is now on HBO max unless he took it off. Yeah. Uh, so my number nine is, uh, similarly another, I, I like pretty well-made genre movie. Uh, it's decision to leave. Uh, this is the new film from South Korean filmmaker Park Chan Wook, uh, discussed it on the show, uh, a couple months ago, um, basically follows a detective who falls in love with the widow of the man whose, uh, mysterious death he is investigating. You know, I, Park Chan Wook, one of the world great filmmakers and someone who you know often traffics in these like very twisted violent often violent genre stories and here is doing this kind of old-fashioned noir where you have like the detective investigating the case and there's the femme fatale and there's kind of a double indemnity element that gets sort of introduced to the plot but is finding all of these really fascinating and interesting ways to kind of play with form uh i think jake triple and i talked about on this show when we discussed it on uh when it came out like there's just sort of shot choices and editing transitions in this movie that are kind of unlike anything you've ever seen before and there's just such a fun energy to it and a, and a fun sort of spirit of movie making and and finding all of these finding all of these fun visuals to sort of liven up the, this kind of old fashioned story um, and sort of having kind of one foot in, in the old and one foot in the new in, in a way that feels really exciting um, that the plot, you know, can get pretty convoluted after a certain point, but I, I would say I was just so dazzled the entire time by not just the filmmaking, but the, the sort of two central performances and, their chemistry i think this may be like the most romantic movie of the year in a very kind of twisted sort of hitchcockian way um so if you haven't seen it it's uh streaming on the service movie um so well worth kind of picking up kind of a free trial of that service which is excellent anyway um but if for any reason then to check out this movie which is just like a really delightfully twisted surprisingly romantic thriller where are we on uh stoker how, how we how do we feel about stoker um i remember liking it but honestly could not tell you much that it it is the one movie of his that i think i i kind of is is least present in my memory if that makes sense fair enough um i i would say this movie this new one decision to leave is i think up there with old boy and the handmaiden as one of his his better movies in my opinion um do you want to move to your number eight sure number eight is till uh i have not cried like this in a movie theater perhaps ever Mm. and uh obviously till based on the true story of emmett till this movie primarily told through the eyes of his mother played by Atlanta's own Danielle Deadweiler. Mm-hmm. And 
as much as I may be rooting for Michelle Yeoh to get her just due, or Kate Blanchett is obviously the front runner, I think, for Tar. Danielle Dewaller's performance is easily number one for me this year. Um, the movie worked as much as it did for me because of her performance, not even necessarily in dialogue, but in body language and facial expressions. Just the grief and righteous anger and rage and seeking justice that she conveys is so powerful. I could not include this on the list. Um, that's not to say that the, uh, the, the movie itself, too, is, is, is great. She, I think, elevates it to a whole nother level. And really someone that I, I was not, was not on my radar. I was not really aware of her before mm-hmm. this performance. And I just, I really hope that she gets recognized. Um, I'm not expecting her to, to win the Oscar or a, a major award, but I, I hope she at least makes the cut in what is a very tough race, given all the great performances this year in that category in particular. Um, but yeah. I don't know. We haven't really we haven't really spoken about it too much. I know. Yeah, I don't. I don't even think we just. Dis- I discussed it on the podcast at all because it just sort of came out in sort of a stream of sort of a whole bunch of releases around yeah. uh, the fall. Um, I'm maybe not as. I maybe didn't quite have the same reaction as you did about the movie itself, but I I fully agree with everything you said about Danielle Deadweiler. I really liked what uh, Manola Dargis in the New York Times had to say about the performance which was talking about it as like a master class in how to play grief and she is finding all of these nuances in and just the way she speaks and her body language like you mentioned and just sort of conveying the varying different forms that grief can um that grief can take in a in a person um and i i i just i fully agree i think it's like one of the best pieces of acting i've seen in the last couple of years i i think i've i've been trying to wrestle with what it was about the movie that i i maybe did not have the same kind of visceral reaction that that you did i i think for for me with sort of historical movies like this i think there has to be some other kind of gear working there has to be some other kind of like conceit or sort of take on top of it other than just sort of like here's the story and i think that's the thing i sort of struggled with a bit of the movie of just sort of it it just sort of laying out very sort of straightforwardly like this is the emmett till story it's a very important story we're making this movie because it's an important story and kind of struggling to sort of see what what the sort of added thing on top of that to sort of what what the sort of new angle or sort of new uh pathway into that story they were trying to take um but i again i i think you know it just it wrecked me it wrecked me yeah i yeah. i i was i was sobbing multiple like uh, ugly crying multiple times um but you know so- it's these exp- these experiences are all you know it, yeah. it could be it could have been a certain day. It just hits you differently. Like it just, yeah, I, I well, was, I was a mess. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioning that is, is sort of a movie that for you sort of holds all of this kind of righteous political anger. And that's kind of what I love about my number eight, which is um, 
the documentary all the blue beauty and the bloodshed um from laura poitras um it it essentially a portrait of a uh, photographer nan golden and her uh advocacy work uh against the sackler family who sort of own uh you know they're they're big sort of pharmaceutical dynasty uh and are largely sort of held responsible for a, the opioid epidemic here in america and you know i i think the thing for me i really love about this movie is it is sort of a no frills political movie like i i almost sort of get annoyed at a certain point of i think there's a lot of movies that get made that are sort of aspiring to be political but from a sort of a sort of position of safety or a position of sort of like remove from the subjects that they are talking about but this movie is a sort of roll up your sleeves angry sort of molotov cocktail that is is imbued with so much anger and and passion and energy and the way it is both sort of able to not only capture Nan Golden's life, which sort of runs parallel to the the sort of thread in this movie of to to the sort of storyline in this movie of her advocacy work and trying to and staging these sort of large protests against the Sackler family in museums across the world. Um, but the you know the point at which those two things kind of converge in the movie, I think, is is more moving than almost anything I've seen uh in a film this year and yeah i i i just i i think i texted you like right after i saw it and was just like holy shit holy shit holy shit like th- this movie just sort of rouses you up and 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 has such a potent anger and uh sort of for, like I, as i said kind of ferocious energy to it um that i i i admire how sort of no frills it is and how uninterested it is in sort of being cuddly and approachable and is just sort of direct and in your face and and really sort of i think captures an immediacy about the issues that it's talking about it's really good yeah i i think like fire of love this will be another one that will be a a big contender in the documentary category i mean it won the the golden lion which is like the grand prize at the venice film festival earlier in the fall it's it's uh it's it's really quite extraordinary i think um you want to talk about your number seven sure do it's the batman okay came out hot early early in the year and god that was almost a year ago that's scary we've been through so much together it's like what if the dark knight but more brooding and emo and sad and lonely and just from the performances to the nirvana to the even like the lighthearted kind of comedic moments to the chemistry between Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz it's all of it all of it and it's i think it's like nearly 3 hours long yeah i think it's pretty i think it's 3 hours exact i mean it it I think we were fine just saying it's three hours. Doesn't doesn't bother me. Didn't bother me. It's too 
Google says two hours, 56, 56 minutes. Give it, give that all to me. Uh, saw it twice in theaters, watched it again once it was on H- HBO Max. And the vibe, the tone, the, the feel, the look, just all, all work for me. We saw this together. Um, and mm-hmm. I I just remember it completely washing over me. And what like one of my favorite moments of the movie is him escaping, like him just running away from the like running out of the police department, and then eating shit when he tries to like glide away. Mm-hmm. It's just like this is just a regular dude, save for like all the money. But this is like this is not necessarily a superhero as we kind of know them in the Marvel universe or the larger DC universe. It's this is a guy with a lot of money and some weird mommy daddy issues that he needs to work through, and it just it it just fully worked. And I am I am so glad they're going to continue on with this and hopefully keep it as far away as possible from the aforementioned DC extended. Yeah, it's. I think we talked about when it came out. Certainly, you and I talked about like after we left the theater, being a bit surprised by you know a, a lot of times with these sort of big comic book movies, there's a there's a certain level of like director BS where they're like, oh, it's you know it's like a '70s conspiracy thriller or something like that, and the extent to which, um, you know, I think we both walked out of that movie like, oh wow, they, you know. They they did what they said they were gonna do. Like it's it's a grungy, uh, kind of slow burn detective movie. Um, that is much closer in in kind of look and feel to something like Seven or a Humphrey Bogart movie. Um, you know, I it 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 didn't quite make my top ten list. Would would but you know would it be in a top fifteen or a top twenty? Ab- absolutely. Um, and you know I think it is it is a a testament to if if we're going to make these these superhero ip movies to sort of give someone like Matt Reeves kind of the room and and space to kind of uh do attempt to at least attempt to do something kind of interesting with with the character i think whether or not this movie is is as much of a sort of radical reinterpretation is something we can we can we can argue about on on a different episode but you know it it there's no doubt while you're watching it that it's it's a movie where the the people behind the scenes came in with like a very very specific take on what they wanted to do with this character and for the most part it seems like the the powers that be at Warner Brothers and DC were kind of content to let them run with that take which you know that's something kind of interesting you got a lot of cats <laughs> Um, so my number seven, I think for me, probably the most underrated movie of the year, um, talked about it a little bit on the TIFF podcast. Uh, it's Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter, which is sort of a offshoot or even like third movie in her kind of souvenir series. Um, it's been interesting. I, th- I feel like a lot of the, the re- kind of reviews and response to this movie have been kind of lukewarm at best i know hunter heilman who's been on the show several times he was also a big fan of it um i believe david sims at the atlantic had it like very high on his year end list um i i would not say that you necessarily need to see 
the the other two souvenir movies to enjoy this one um it it certainly is basically joanna hogg kind of taking the characters from that movie and injecting them into this sort of very old-fashioned very english ghost story um filled with all the kind of like chilly atmosphere and kind of creaking floorboards and you know window shutters that are like clanging against the house and is able to to do i think a lot of the very introspective autobiographical work that she did in those souvenir movies but also pair it with a i think a very compelling like genre story and has tilda swinton sort of playing a a filmmaker and her mother who check into this sort of spooky uh english countryside hotel and as much as there's all the kind of creepy things going on in the atmosphere it's a mother-daughter story and it's a story about a, a woman who is an artist trying to make a film about her mother the film is in some ways tilda swinton making a movie about her desire to make a movie about her mother and the way that it can become frustrating to sort of like try and find a new dimension to your parent especially after they have passed and the ways in which there are aspects of your parents that you're never quite able to understand or you don't come to understand until later than life i just found it like a really fascinating really rich movie that that as i said had all of these kind of very alluring kind of surface level genre movie pleasures to it but the further it went on and the sort of deeper it proved the more moving i found it and and i i i kind of just don't understand why the maybe it's because it's of kind of the acclaim the previous two movies joanna hogg made got um maybe it's also this movie kind of being just sort of dropped on vod by a24 but um i i really think this is quite possibly the most underrated movie of the year and is is really quite spectacular just just a reminder and i apologize for getting this experience over you seeing joanna hogg that's right you saw her in person and tilda swinton speak speaking after directly after the screening at at tiff Um, delightful yeah um you want to talk about your number six number six another movie we saw at, at tiff yeah, we go from one Colin Farrell performance to another, from Bat- the Batman, he was the Penguin, to the Banshees of Inishirin. One of the most hysterical, outrageous, delightful, sad movies of the year. The anti-buddy comedy. Reteaming him, Martin McDonough, Brendan Gleeson, in... This the the thing that I love about it is that if you just wanna watch it as like a romp, you mm-hmm. can. Um it's obviously there's obviously a layer to it of the Irish Civil War. Mm-hmm. But if you simply just want to watch it as a movie about how far someone will go to make their former friend regret ghosting them. <laughs> You can you can simply just just have it at that, and I I know it didn't quite make your top ten. I see it, it's close there. It's very I close. I I could it's on HBO Max now, so I could easily like rewatch it this weekend and be like, yep, that's 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 number eight now or something like that. Yeah, it's it's 
it's just it's it's weird saying this because it's not number one, but I, I just I find it like perfect. Mm-hmm. Like I I just have no have no notes for it. It just like we walked out of the theater. This was the last movie we saw before we left TIFF, and this I think for both of us was kind of like everything we hoped it would have been, and more possibly, and quite possibly the Colin Farrell's career best performance. Mm, certainly up there. Um, I'm, uh, I'm you're more you're, likely to be the one that he's going to. Yeah, he's going yes. to win an Oscar. It will be. It will be for this. You know, I I think this definitely has like the best screenplay of the year, not just because of how funny it is and how kind of witty and humorous the dialogue is, but you know, as you said, it 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 works as this fable that has all these other kind of allegorical meanings you can read into it. You know, it's it, I think it is also aside from the allusions to kind of the Irish civil war there, there's, you know, a lot in it about this idea of like, what, how are we remembered throughout history? Is it, is what, and what is more important to sort of like be kind to, to the people around us? And is it about the sort of interpersonal relationships we have, or is it about sort of leaving behind some kind of lasting work? And is, is it about what we put out into the world um, and sort of make with our hands that, that, is what we are remembered by and never kind of falling down on one side or the other of that issue. But, but using that as kind of the central conflict of it. Um, it's, it's just, you know, uh, as you said, a hysterically funny movie that also, I think when you dig deeper into it is, is really, really smart and has so many layers to it. Um, I think we should skip my number six cause it's going to come up higher for you, but um, let's talk about my number five, which is your number four, which is the biggest movie of the year, um, Top Gun Maverick. Uh, I don't think, you know, this is a movie that everyone and their grandmother kind of went and saw. Um, It is not just the biggest box office hit of the year, but one of the biggest box office hits of all time. Um, I don't think we're, I don't think we need to do any convincing of people of, of Top Gun Maverick, but um, I, I, I think it is an opportunity to sort of pose to you, a question of like what what is it about this movie that you think made it such a phenomenon this past year they're flying planes really <laughs> fast like for real though uh i mean they they took they they did it like they this movie was i i did an interview for this movie with Miles Tell like the the kind of the secondary cast, mm-hmm. not Tom Cruise is what I'm saying. Glenn Powell, Monica Barbaro, Miles Teller. In January 2020, during the Super Bowl when I was in Miami and I was working in Miami, that felt early for them to be promoting the movie then. Then this movie did not come out for another two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And we waited and we waited and it was worth the wait. And Paramount sat on it and wouldn't release it. And they knew what they had. And they won. And it's Tom Cruise doing kind of what he does best and what we have come to expect from him. It's better than the original. Mm -hmm. It pays off on all of the emotional beats of the original, but more because we have this plus 30 year now relationship with that first movie. They 
do a fantastic job of paying homage to the original while also still branching off of that and not just redoing it. It's 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 a marvel. It's it's really like this, and this is exactly the kind of movie that you just absolutely have to see in theaters. Um, I am very pro, like, I want to be able to watch movies at home, or I just want movies to be as successful as possible. But this is definitely, like, yeah, you gotta see it in theaters. And people clearly knew that and responded to it. Um, I'm sure a lot of repeat viewings, I saw it twice in theaters. Um, and, man, it's just like, they... They, they they waited two and a half years and it was just completely worth it like they they took a victory lap yeah i i think there's there's so many reasons why this 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 was such a phenomenon i mean at, at, as you said there's there's simplicity to it like it's tom cruise flying airplanes like it's you know, you don't you don't have to sell people that hard on it. And there's um, no politics. They they that's I know that's like a knock on it a little bit where it's like who are we actually fighting? But they're very smart. Same same thing with the with the original. They're very smart to just like leave that out because at the end of the day, no one's there to judge the movie based on that. So why like why even bother? Yeah, and and I think you know you know you could say that like the success of this movie is a sort of yearning for a kind of big sweeping spectacle after years of watching movies at home uh, due to the pandemic. You could say it's this yearning by audiences to return to or to return to this sort of nostalgic old school blockbuster model with sort of the big marquee movie star at the center. Um, I, I I just think it's it is it is blockbuster filmmaking at its its best, um, and really just have nothing simpler. I I think if you want to read some really eloquent writing on it, uh, Bill Gatberry, uh, over at Vulture in New York Magazine has has I think done some of the best writing about this movie and sort of really breaking down kind of the aesthetics of it and what it is that not just makes this better than the original Top Gun from 1986, but why it is such an effective piece of, of kind of big screen pop art. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I saw it a couple times in theaters. First time I saw it with you had a great time. Then second time went and saw it with a friend of ours and, she had never, I think, even seen the first Top Gun, and just how raucous that theater was. It it just sort of made me kind of love go from a movie that I I had a really good time with to a movie I kind of loved, and it's like, oh yeah, this is definitely one of the the best blockbusters in recent years. Um, so I just remember at the end of our screening, we both stood up and ripped off our American flag <laughs> T shirts and did the Predator handshake yes flexing our muscles and um yeah planes flew above us it was great it was amazing um so that was your number four it's my number five uh as as we said northman was your number five um my number four is another movie that came out over the summer it's uh jordan peele's nope um which i rewatched the other day I really liked it when saw it in theaters. Then when I rewatched it uh, a couple days ago, I, it sort of 
really sort of like rose it rose from like number like nine or eight on my list to to number four and you know maybe in a couple weeks time will be number three um i i just think jordan peele is kind of do he's just doing something that like very few other people are doing which is making kind of these big screen kind of very pop entertaining genre movies but are imbued with so many interesting ideas um and this movie i think the his his skill as a filmmaker has risen to uh, a level that i would have never imagined he he'd reached not 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 out of some sort of backhanded way but of just sort of like he's operating i think on a level as as a filmmaker in terms of crafting images and the way he moves the camera and just some of the the set pieces and sequences in here that i i think are spielberg level and and that and that's when i say like i would have never thought he'd get to this place it's not a knock against him it's like that's a hard level to reach and it was kind of amazing sitting and watching this in the theater and and seeing him reach those heights and be able to construct that kind of movie magic on screen while i also think kind of the ideas at this movie center about our relationship to spectacle and the ways we are willing to sort of put ourselves in danger in order to to bear witness to that spectacle are so interesting you know re-watching it again a second time i i almost had a thought of like this is kind of a horror movie that is almost a cautionary tale about our relationship to horror movies and and of like our desire of like i want to watch something that's going to be so unsettling or so disturbing and being a movie about how that sort of desire for that kind of adrenaline and thrill can be dangerous at a certain point um and even then you know another facet again just something i enjoy about this movie is it you can sort of pull so many different threads out of it. It's still a movie that I feel like I'm unpacking. Um, you know, I heard a conversation with Wesley Morris over at the New York times where he was talking about, um, he was talking with Jenna Wortham, his podcasting partner there, who is also a writer at the times and talking about, this is a movie about two black characters who witness something that most people would not believe. And what do they have to do to prove what what they bear witness to and make others bear witness to what they've seen they have to capture footage of it and and that being you know such a a powerful parable and such a powerful metaphor to stuff that is happening in the real world this is just such a smart movie that that again the more i've been thinking about it in the last six months or so since it came out the more of these sort of threads i've 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 been able to to pull out and it is one of the few movies this year that I've been I sort of most fascinated by what other people are writing about it and sort of feel like with each I almost want to read like every piece and everyone writes about this movie because I feel like I'm pulling something new out of it um and uh, so uh, as I said is is sort of firing on on sort of both cylinders that I really crave in in a movie sort of the sort of visceral visceral pop aesthetics of it it, it is like a really effective sci-fi thriller but as i said it is also this movie that is is ripe with so many interesting ideas about our our relationship to the world and i i personally like that that peel in the ideas in his movies is sort of 
broadening to this more kind of Josh Martin kind of mentioned last week it kind of briefly brought this up but it's he's sort of broadening to this more like abstract level in his ideas of it's not necessarily like get out and us which was like this is a direct metaphor to like this socio-political issue it's like he, he's thinking grander in term and more universal in terms of the the ideas and how they relate to the human experience I think this is going to be year number one or number two in a few weeks when we like next next time. I feel like next time you bring it up or like yeah. we discuss it, you're gonna it'll, it'll it'll top the chart. It's it's the one movie this year that has like really been rising the fastest, and and you're probably right. I can, I mean I have the Blu-ray. I could probably like watch it a third time, and it it could be my number one or number two in like six months or something like that. Um. My number four was Top Gun Maverick. Yes. So our number three is the same. Yes. Um. So another movie I can't believe we've never talked about on the show, or at least I don't think we have, which is RRR. This is an action movie from India that kind of became a a sort of crossover success here in the United States. I don't know when 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 did you first kind of become aware of this movie? I think you flagged it. Okay. To me. Uh, I, I don't I, know if you had seen it on Netflix or if you saw a screening of it, but I remember you being very excited about it. And I was like, whoa, three hours. Let's calm <laughs> down now. Yeah. And I finally got around to watching it. And it's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Like very much just like kind of like Top Gun, like talking yes. about like this is this is what you want movies and cinema to be. Yeah. Th- this is maybe like pound for pound. I think the most viscerally entertaining thing I think I watched all year i i probably first got wind of this of every now and then on twitter you know there'll be you know some sort of over the top trailer for some action movie from india that that is people are almost tweeting about it jokingly of like oh can you believe like the stuff that's that's in this um and i so i think that's where i first got wind of it and then you know, it it obviously was this giant hit over in that country. I think it's one of the, the biggest hits in their history. Um, and really, I started hearing about it again at screenings that were happening here in the United States in sort of uh, neighborhoods and areas of, of major cities that have a uh, big Indian population. And these kind of wild, almost like party-like movie screenings with like confetti and people are dancing and cheering and screaming um i i'm like so jealous that i never got to they they had a couple of these screenings here in atlanta where we live but i i didn't get a chance to attend any of them um i i know a few people including josh martin who was on this uh show uh last week you know who have been to some of these like big theatrical showings of this movie and just the energy in the room is is just uh, they describe it as like I, I i've heard it described as like whatever like the most ecstatic like marvel screening you've ever been to like times that by 10 and that's like what it's like to see this movie in a in a packed crowd um i would describe it as like one part historical epic one part buddy action movie one part musical but it is this big colorful three hour extravaganza that it it just every second of it is designed for just maximum pleasure and it it is big and bombastic and over the top but i i think it is like so hard to watch it without this giant grin on your face and just 
has such a sense of of fun in it. It's 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 weirdly I think kind of similar to uh when I mentioned decision to leave of just like a the moviness of it just has such a it, there's such a fun to the filmmaking if that makes sense. Um and I've only seen it once. I'd love to see it again. I think if I do see it again, I really want to see it on on a big screen. Um, it is available to stream on Netflix here in the States, although an important note is that the version on Netflix is dubbed in Hindi, which is not the original language. Um, I personally am not as familiar with Indian cinema. That's kind of like a bit of a blind spot for me. So part of the fun of this movie was getting kind of a window into a whole other country's cinema um that i have not had much exposure to but i kind of learned through sort of researching this movie after i saw it that there's sort of multiple different film industries within india this is part of not bollywood but tollywood um which does a lot of these sort of big over-the-top action extravaganzas that are super popular there now um but uh so it is it is um in the language of Tulagun. Um, and but the version on Netflix has been dubbed for like another uh, region in India that uh, has Netflix more prominently. Um, so I there are versions of this that I'm sure exist out there in the original language, but just I thought like an important caveat uh, to if you're gonna fire this up on a streaming platform over the weekend. So good. Just I mean. Now. That I that there's kind of like hardly anything like and I'm there are some definitely like very intelligent pieces online about this movie. I would also encourage people to read kind of like what Indian Americans and Indian critics have said about this movie. Um, but I I I think it's hard to kind of just like ultimately it just boils down to just like sick movie, like really rad, insanely entertaining, and just like fun from start. Three hours of maximum fun entertainment so many like memorable moments and action sequences and yeah just a delight of a movie to to watch yeah it kind of feels like for this year sort of what happened with parasite a couple of years ago of the the you know the international film that becomes a little bit of a crossover here in the united states and maybe sort of exposes uh, a wider swath of moviegoers here in the united states to a whole other country's cinema and and it's it's kind of exciting when that happens um shall we talk about uh i guess your number two which was my number six but uh it ranks higher on your list so i'll let you kind of take the lead on it we talked about this early in the year and i was pretty certain this would end up being somewhere among my favorite movies of the year. I just couldn't see anything really surpassing it. Mm-hmm. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even... I, I don't know what to... I feel like we, we've talked about this at length, both... It's actually, off. weirdly, a movie we haven't talked about that much on this show. I think I did, like, a brief segment, and then I think Hunter Heilman and I, or maybe you and I, kind of briefly talked about it over the summer... Um, it was the same Northman episode, I feel like. It was okay, Northman, okay. Unbearable, like, yeah. Um, just another, like, a, a, a roller coaster of emotions. Of mm. Kind of hits every beat. It's funny. It's entertaining. It's sentimental. It's 
a little depressing at times. Um, this is directed by the Daniels, the filmmaking duo, and starring, of course, Michelle Yeoh in kind of a, a performance that has now given everyone a chance and herself a chance to kind of really show what she's capable of. And maybe if people didn't appreciate her talents before now, they are. They get they get to see the the, the wide scope of what she's able to do on camera. Um, a really funny um, perform and physical performance from Jamie Lee Curtis in a supporting role. And just really sharp has a has a lot to say about humanity and family and life and it's it's so satisfying and heartwarming and this is one of the this is a this feels i mentioned it earlier like the kind of one consensus movie maybe that this and like banshees where everyone who sees it really loves it i i haven't really heard a compelling argument against it yeah, um, I I know people who definitely don't like it, but it 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 seems to be more of a a taste thing of like finding it either like a little too twee or like the optimism of it not working for them or or just the the you know, it it on paper kind of it is a movie that on paper I think kind of sounds like it shouldn't work or should be a bit of a mess and it is a little bit of a mess but i think the oh, mess it's all over the place but i think the mess is sort of part of the fun in it at least for i think people like me and you and i think for so many people who who saw it this past year and it is kind of the i i think even more than i mean it didn't make as much money as top gun maverick but this to me is kind of i think the most exciting success story of the year of this kind of small sort of obscure indie movie with a very weird premise that is essentially about this like middle-aged asian american woman who like has to save the world as various multiverses are sort of collapsing in on each other um well just trying to do her taxes she's just trying to do her taxes but like it it and it's also kind of like you know it's one part family drama it's one part martial arts movie it's one part high concept sci-fi it's like another part like absurdist comedy you know it as i'm describing it sounds like something that should absolutely not work and yet somehow the Daniels I I feel like are able to sort of weave all of those varying tones um so beautifully and and make something that just feels kind of like electric and original and surprising in a way that you know you're you're never quite sure which direction it's going to take next and and again I think you could put it alongside something like RRR and Top Gun Maverick of like it's another real maximalist movie that where it is like big flashy style right in your face. Um and I also feel like could fit with RRR and Decision to Leave as like a movie that just has such a joy in the movie making. Um and and I think as wild and weird as it is, um it is a movie that also I I I think the real reason that this movie has been such a surprise word of mouth success and the biggest hit of A24's um 
history as a studio or in the history of A24 as a distributor um, is the family story at the center of it and having this very like human emotional center that I think people can grab onto even if they're a little sort of thrown off by like the butt plug jokes and the weird sci-fi stuff and all the martial arts in here like the there's a tangible human story at the center about a mother trying to reconnect with her family and reassessing her life and maybe finding out that she's more blessed than she thinks she actually is and now i'm sounding like one of my like very religious religious aunts saying that (laughs) way but you know i i think a movie they would probably find a lot to like um so uh yeah it's it's it like i said it's it's number six on my list um but uh a movie that i think both of us saw it were kind of like i i i walked out and was just like i can't believe that worked as well as it did absolutely so my number one is your number two Do we yes talk about it? yeah um i don't know what more we have to say about it because yeah. we've already done like what like two hours of podcasting on it from talking about it at tiff and then talking about it when it came out um it's the fablemans of steven spielberg's autobiographical story uh, about how he fell into making movies the divorce of his parents the pull between family and art which i believe would also make a a a great double feature with banshees i mean it's this this is the thing i wanted to to sort the last thing i wanted to bring up with with fablemans and it's something that josh martin brought up last week on the babylon episode which is kind of this fitting into this grouping of movies this year that were kind of all about sort of the allure of of cinema as an art form and both and what you have to give up sort of falling in love with that art form you know there is this sort of you know josh and i talked about last week this kind of like almost bleak sort of sacrificial view on that that i we feel felt like babylon had you know nope which i mentioned earlier is almost this cautionary tale in like you know how far are you going to go for that like one great shot um even I, I think like as much as I love the Fablemans, I think the best version of this was the Irma Vep show on on TV, um, which was really grappling with like you, the you know the the constraints and sort of hierarchy of how you have to make a movie today, with sort of like the maverick energy to to kind of capture something great and unforgettable on celluloid, um, and I I feel like the Fablemans for. As much as I feel like it's been misrepresented out in the marketing as this sort of sappy, like, wonder kid learns about the magic of the movies. Like, it's it's actually, I feel like, this kind of melancholy, complicated, in some cases, like, thorny tale of, like, a kid finding his voice as an artist and learning to sort of work through these complicated feelings he has about his family through his art and sort of the push and pull between kind of like relating to others, but also like you're so obsessed with like this one thing and that thing being movie making and, and that being kind of like, you're so obsessed with it that that's kind of like the only way you can see and experience and view the world and having to sort of, I need to sort of process this stuff that's happening in my real life through that art form. Um, And I'll shut up now. I know it's a movie you deeply deeply love 
here's your opportunity might be your last opportunity ever to talk about the fable men's what what, what do you got to say daniel no notes you okay. did it steven <laughs> take take your take your take your bow i mean just bravo bravo to the to the big man maybe the best to ever do it um yeah this is also like i went into this very kind of nervous that it was gonna be that nicole kidman amc ad stretch across three hours which turns out that would be empire of light right there <laughs> there are a few movies that you could kind of say that about from this year um and it was a little bit of that but in the best possible way mm-hmm. and just ever like it's also you know these lists are subjective and movie going is subjective and, and that cinematic experience and this just Everything clicked perfectly for me seeing this and it is one of those, one of the movies, and I think I've said this before, one of the movies that I will always remember the first experience watching it. Like sitting in the theater, who was around me, moments specifically, like out of body experience like moments. Um, And yeah, just, I... I love it. I, I I knew it like 15 minutes in too. Like I, I just had this like grin on my face like a child. And I just kind of knew like 15, 20 minutes in, like I was witnessing something that I was going to really, really love. So to wrap us up, uh, my number one movie of the year is Tar. Uh, Todd Field's complex rorschach of a movie about a complicated artist in this case a a conductor played by kate blanchett and uh the movie sort of very i think subtly kind of brings us into this world of of classical music of very like high level like world-renowned classical music and then slowly starts to chip away and reveal sort of controversies and aspects of this character that Blanchett is playing that are maybe unsavory. And I think without coming down on one side of the issue versus the other, poses and explores this question about like, can we separate the art from the artists? And is also exploring the various avenues that that people use power in order to sort of control others and to advance in their careers. It's no other movie this year. I I think I've thought longer about thought more deeply about um, been more avid to recommend to other people. Is it a perfect movie? No, I I think there's some flaws. I, I think the ending to me, I think is interesting, but I is, is even the part of the movie that I still kind of wrestle with the most um blanchett is like batting 1000 in this movie i mean if for any other reason this is this is the kate blanchett show like move the out of the way and watch this woman just sort of like run the table on everyone else in this cast um and it's a pretty great cast like i think everyone's exquisite in this movie the direction is i think really really smart and is both sort of like direct and powerful and clinical while also is sort of subtle and takes turns and and sort of unfolds in ways that you 
aren't entirely expecting it's it's just a movie that like as as soon as we saw it i i was like it's almost three hours i think you were a bit exhausted by that length i kind of was just like hypnotized the entire time went back and saw it with another friend of ours like a week later and it's it as i said it is just the movie this year that i have not stopped thinking about and is such a rich fascinating text and i i i i want to recommend it to people if only because i i am so eager to hear what other people think about it because almost every conversation i've had about it with someone they're bringing something new to the table or pulling something out of it that I didn't think of or have a totally different interpretation about uh, a scene or a character than from what I had. Even, even I will tell you like the, the first time we saw it and the, when I went back and saw it a second time had a completely different read on the movie. The second time I saw it, It, especially like the ending, I think the first time you and I saw it together, I took the ending as, more hopeful and then like the second time i saw it took it as like way more jagged edge and kind of <laughs> darkly humorous and it is that kind of movie that it can it i can imagine just sort of re-watching it every few years and having a totally different read on it and it's not that one is wrong but it is so kind of malleable and mysterious it sort of lends itself to that kind of interpretation it's yeah, I think the, the your last point in particular, particular a fascinating movie to talk about and unpack. Yeah. So, we did it! End of the podcast. 20, 2022. At the end of Infinity War? Yeah. Get to rest. Let's close the book. Um, Before we wrap up, uh, we don't have to make too big of a deal about it, but like, I'm curious, what are just like five movies off the top of your head that you're most excited for next year? Biosphere, which saw at TIFF. That was oh, what right. I was crazy mm-hmm. about, and it will be out next year. Um, formally titled Disappointment Boulevard, which I guess now is Bo is Afraid, the yeah. Ari Aster movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm excited for the next phase of the MCU, if only to finally be done with this whatever phase that we were in for. You're really hyped um, for Ant- Ant-Man Quantumania. <laughs> I know you are. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon and Barbie. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm excited for all those Killers of the Flower Moon. I just just buckle up. You you have not been friends with me when a yet when a Martin Scorsese movie's coming out. It's it's like it's like Marty's just like Papa Christmas coming down the chimney, pull, pulling out <laughs> pulling out his his sack, and it's a. It's a VHS tape. It's like, here you go, Jesse. <laughs> a new gift. Um, yeah, I'm I'm excited for all of those. I'm also uh I'm excited for Oppenheimer. You know, I I was not the biggest fan of Tenet, Christopher Nolan's last movie, but I I look forward to hopefully being one back over again. I, I like the idea of him doing kind of a a another historical film and sort of him making a movie about someone making a doomsday machine just seems like that's, that's kind of just right in his wheelhouse of themes he likes to work with. Um, I'm also very interested in the killer, the new David Fincher movie with Michael Fassbender in it. Um, You know, 
We got a new Yorgos Lanthimos movie next year with Emma Stone. Michael Mann's Ferrari. That's that's when I'm going to be really annoying is when there's a new oh, Michael yeah. Mann movie coming out. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, oh, and Mission, uh, Mission Impossible. Probably the blockbuster I am most excited for next year. Mi Mission Impossible. What is it? Mission Impossible colon dead reckoning part, part two one. or something or no part one yes of course it's yeah. part one yeah um what we're just gonna call it mission impossible seven on this podcast but um i i look forward to the latest round of death defying stunts from tom cruise 